Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy, my friends. Sam, welcome to the show. It's great to have hey, you here. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this. With pleasure. So you're the founder of uh, Release Muscle Therapy, right? Uh, I believe you've spent about two decades really uncovering the, the root cause of things like um, aches and pains along with postural and movement issues. Um, where did this all begin? Where, where did this start? I mean, fundamentally, I started, I, th I think this is pretty much this field of health and fitness and wellness is all I've ever really done. Um, you know, as classically kind of growing up, the, the kid who was too skinny, who needed to spend a lot of time in the gym. Um, but, you know, this is in the days where there were Barnes and Nobles and bookstores, you know, rather than everything being digitalized. But I remember sitting there, you know, going through the aisles and I used to love reading bodybuilding magazines. I mean, that's just something that young guys tend to get into, you know, in the fitness field. But I love the scientific parts of it, you know, when you could follow specific programs and so forth. And uh, that was really my love and my passion. And, you know, when I got out of school, um, I had a couple of short term kind of uh, gigs, but I ended up becoming a trainer. And this was right at the phase where everything was moving into what we call like the functional training revolution, you know, back in the late 90s when everybody was into, you know, hey, you should exercise on Swiss balls and use more cables. So that was like right when things were taking off. And uh, I got swept up into that. And, you know, I started learning about posture, corrective exercise, all that kind of stuff. And here's me looking at the back of the book, all the references to try to find out where all this information came from. And I ended up stumbling upon the right people who took me under, under their wing. And, um, you know, one of the things that they told me right away is like, you need to be able to, to put your hands on people to do hands-on therapy to get real good results. So, you know, and for me, I wasn't committed to going back to college. I was already kind of doing the things that I wanted to do. So I went to massage school and there's a whole kind of subdivision within massage. That's more like kind of general massage therapy and more kind of clinical massage therapy. You're working with people with uh, ailments and so forth. And I did a lot of training in that and that kind of went on. And that was early on in my career, the first couple of years. So I was on the fast track for that. And then, uh, you know, as another 15 years passed, there's a lot of layers to dig into when it comes to dealing with people with all these types of uh, aches and pains issues. And, and I became immersed in that. And then what I do now is uh, the culmination of all of that work. Mm -hmm. God, I remember um, moving from that kind of bodybuilding phase, um, particularly in the gyms. I, I was speaking to uh, a student of mine on a different podcast 
uh, was this a couple of weeks ago and saying how, you know, do you remember when it was all machines and bodybuilder equipment? And then there was the functional training corner. Like it just started off with a couple of pieces of equipment. And I even remember those days getting people doing crazy stuff like kneeling on a Swiss ball, doing cable rotations and these sorts totally. of things. Totally. It was all the we, it was all the rage, all the rage. I think most of us didn't really know what we were doing. No, um, at the all. Training corner, you know, started to to increase. Now, of course, we have functional, dedicated functional training gyms and everything. And and still, when I go into gyms, I see, even now, like a lot of trainers still not really knowing what to do. They haven't been taught, you know, functional movement patterns, anatomy trains. They don't know much about fascia, and they don't, you know, um, functional biomechanics and these sorts of things. It's just about Oh, what's some crazy exercise that I can give someone, right? What, um, what, what's, I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts on why has the, the sort of the functional training, let's call it functional training, um, the exercises, the equipment, it still has so much popularity, of course, but the education seems to be, at least in, you know, um, from in my perception, it seems to be lacking here. People are doing things without having an understanding of why they're actually doing things or why they might prescribe a certain exercise over another. What, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, there's a lot of, I, I would say that, you know, if you, most of this stuff comes from physical therapy, right? So the physical therapy profession is what's kind of bolstering the cash flow to do all the research and so forth. And so, you know, what's interesting about this is that how far behind the mainstream is to what the research says. And this is true in almost every field. Um, and even when we were starting into this functional training revolution, there was a lot of research that had gone into looking at posture, looking at pain and all these sorts of things. So even then, but obviously far more uh, aware of it now, most people are, and, and a lot of people still aren't, is that the principles that kind of guided this direction of things, uh, for the most part, uh, general physical therapy principles and so forth was based around the idea that, you know, bad posture causes pain, joint mechanics. It was a very mechanical structural kind of idea that pain comes from this. And so a lot of times that, you know, going forward from that was out of kinesiology, which is like, Hey, we're going to correct muscle imbalances. If your chest is too dominant to your back, we're going to do a lot of this, but then you bring in these kinesiology kind of neurosensory, neuromotor kind of uh, neurology practices into this to say human beings move in multiple planes of motion. So when you lay on a bench and you just do a push and a pull, that's not exactly how it works. We tend to, to move and oscillate. So the functional training revolution kind of capitalized on some of that, that, um, those, that conflict between those two principles and say, we're going to develop all of these different ways to address that problem. Now, of course, the arguments come in there that, you know, there's benefits to doing both. Those models are very, very good. And I, I think that it's, that's where the challenge has come, which is, you know, it's now become two camps that are against each other, rather than saying, when is it appropriate to do each of these things? When does it make sense to do so? Um, and this happened a lot, I think, in the athletic field in particular, became very aware of this, because as the functional training revolution picked up, a lot of the teams were quick to try to bring people aboard to capitalize on this to see if it would improve performance. And I've noticed many strength coaches over the years that I've known personally who work with elite athletes, especially in strength and power-based sports, that the athletes got too involved with functional training and what we were talking about, kneeling on Swiss balls and so forth. And they were getting weaker and they were getting more predisposed to being to getting injuries because they weren't training as aggressively as they could and they were losing strength. 
So there's a perfect example. And then the, the field started almost swinging too hard back to that again. So it's always like this pendulum rather than just kind of like, all right, here's the principles. This is what we're trying to do. And how do we integrate all of this stuff in a manner that makes sense? So just like everything, people get caught up in a, in a trend or a technique or something else rather than looking at the overall philosophy. Uh, yeah, look, and, and we could talk about so many of these trends. Yeah. I mean, like I remember when CrossFit first started becoming really big, when TRM yeah. really exploded and started off this whole um, kind of multi-planner suspension training thing, when kettlebells and we had hard style versus gear voice sport, like yes, just gone on from there, right? <laughs> well, now therapy is the land of acronyms you know, NMT, RMT, all these acronyms. And you're just like, well, it's just a, a general philosophy. It's not a different thing, almost like a kettlebell. It's a weight, you know, it's like a dumbbell that's shaped differently. That's it's more advantageous to use this tool for an exercise than that. But what's the philosophy that's driving this? I think that's really the key piece. It's just, that's just, it's a tool, you know? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I, I really wanted to talk to you about is chronic pain. Uh, I've had a, a close family member of mine who has dealt with chronic pain. Uh, this was a few years ago, um, was dealing with it for many, many years due to a CSF leak. Uh, and so I'd love to, to dive into this topic more. So I think, first of all, um, for our listeners, when we're talking about chronic pain, uh, what are we talking about here? So I, I think the easiest, and there's many levels to that kind of discussion as to defining something like this, but for, for simplicity's sake, let's just talk about the difference between acute pain and chronic pain, right? So acute pain is pretty simple to describe. Most of us have experienced that. You know, you bump your knee on something or you twist your ankle and, you know, there, you've damaged some tissue. You get some bruising, you get, um, you know, your ankle swells up if you roll your ankle. So there's an injury, there's some tissue damage. You look down you know, something's aggravated, it makes sense. Your body is, is creating a signal, and we'll talk about that here in a second, as a signal to get you to pay attention to something, to, to take care of it. There's something going on there, right? So, but every tissue injury that you've got, whether you injured bone, joint, et cetera, has kind of its own phase of time where it's gonna heal. It's just gonna do its thing. So we all know that if you break a bone, you get into a cast, and you know, the cast is gonna be what? Six to eight weeks, you know, depending on what it is. And then the tissue is just going to heal itself. You don't really have to do much about that. Uh, you, you pull a muscle. It could be a shorter time. I don't know, 14 days, whatever. The point is, is that everything heals in its own time. Even in severe cases, I think virtually every expert now generally agrees to the idea that everything in the body will heal within six months. So even more severe types of injuries. So at six months, let's say, and again, it varies depending on what we just talked about, uh, the type of injury. But it's six months that stuff is healed. So if somebody is feeling pain after the tissue has healed, then what function is the pain serving? Now we're in a land where we're more into what we call chronic pain. And chronic pain is the pain that exists after the expected time of healing in the tissue. And uh, most people don't know this, but I almost see these things as two completely different animals. There are therapeutic methods that definitely work on both you know, as tools that work on a lot of things, but the mentality of how we should approach chronic pain is very, very different than how we approach acute pain. And that's why it's important to have that distinction. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to remember if we have, you know, different, different types of pain. We have uh, 
like predominantly um, nociceptor or nociceptive type pain, right? Neuro, then there's neuropathic. Um, remember there's a, and please correct me if I'm wrong, there's central sensitization. Is that a different type of pain or, or where does that fit into this equation? Yeah. And so this is where also things get interesting is that when you start to define down categories, so chronic pain is not just chronic pain and then it's all the same, right? So we have different types of, of information and, and reception that's going on in your nervous system. So what's important here is just to back up real quick is that uh, an important principle when we teach about pain is that there are no pain nerves in your body. Okay. There's really just nerves. And the way I like to explain it best is kind of like having an alarm system on your house. So you have these wires that go to all your windows and your doors and so forth. And you have a central box that kind of is the, the main computer. So the nerves, so to speak, those wires that go to the, the windows and so forth, their job is just to send information back to the processing unit. Their job is not to trigger the alarm, right? Their job is to say, hey, window opened, something happened to stimuli. It sends that information to the information box. And that box has an algorithm. It has a lot of different components in it that have a, a series of things that let it know something's programmed to alert people when this occurs, boom, here's the alarm. Now our system works fundamentally the same. We have information that comes from the body and we can have a different intensity of the information, right? If somebody pushes on something, it could be a light amount of intensity or it can be a lot, but the decision for pain is not up to those nerves. That information has to go up the spinal cord to the brain and the brain processes that information and makes a decision as to if, the, if that information is threatening or not and to what degree that it, does it prompt a response. And a response is oftentimes going to be pain to get you to take action. And pain is noxious for a reason. And the intensity of it is based upon the level of threat to get us to do something, right? So it's a very normal process. So our body gives information to the brain so forth. So most of the time, the types of pain that we're experiencing are usually straightforward things like nociceptive pain. Now, nociception is an easy way of just saying the information that's going, that I just said, from the nerve to the brain is nociception. It's information. It's just information sending it to brain going, hey, this uh, is too hot. This is too cold. There's too much pressure here. So that kind of nociceptive pain is classically what we associate to getting relief using simple methods, massage therapy, uh, chiropractic, it's very good at dealing with nociceptive pain because it can manipulate what we're feeling in the tissues and change the information going to the brain. Now, neuropathic is a little bit of a different animal. Neuropathic pain is more like you could say a dysfunction of the nerve itself. Um, and these are more classically associated to nerve-based pains that most people know like sciatica, which is like an inflammatory situation of the nerve. Uh, you have carpal tunnel, um, you know, other things like that, neural types of pain. Now, the last one, and, and that, by the way, takes a different kind of level of therapy, right? I think we all know that when somebody has sciatica, you just can't massage them. And then the sciatic nerve just calms right down. It's a different kind of classification of things. Now, when we're dealing with this concept, what you call centralized pain, whole nother animal. The centralized pain is essentially, imagine that a threat is constantly coming into the system on a regular basis and something kind of gets triggered. And that thing that gets triggered is it almost causes the brain to not only be responding to a specific kind of stimuli, but to almost go into a higher level status of vigilance and awareness and threat. 
I call it like raising, it's like going to DEFCON 2, DEFCON 3, right? The system is now aware or increased awareness of multiple stimuli rather than just one stimuli, right? That was associated to the pain. So this increased state of vigilance now is like all of the information that's coming from the body and upward, no susceptive pain and so forth. It's like the volume knob got turned up. So the information coming from the system is the same, but the brain is registering it as more intense than it really is. So that's kind of a different animal. And that's associated with a lot of complex pain cases uh, that might be like fibromyalgia, complex regional pain syndrome, things like that. And it is definitely, this is the interesting part, is that some authors and, and experts believe that we don't have just nociceptive pain or the neuro-based or the, you know, we have a combination. It's like a pie chart. And we're also, when, when pain becomes chronic, to some degree, there's an influence of all of those things going on. So it's not one or the other. It's just a matter of how much of those things there is on the individual and their circumstance, which makes it interesting because people like to have classifications. Well, I'm this, this, and this, but it doesn't really work that way. It's a little messy. But how uh, we actually try to work on categorizing certain types of pain can be very helpful for obvious reasons to understand what the person is, is experiencing, but also to select the right kinds of therapies that are going to be more likely to be effective with that kind of problem. Mm. What are, I know you mentioned some of them before when it comes to the uh, sort of standard uh, nociceptive uh, based pain, but what are some, some common therapies for each of these that if you went to sort of your GP and then got referred to someone that um, they would be prescribing for, for these categories? Yeah. If you look at medications, and this is kind of the mechanism or the rationale for using medications for pain, medication classes work on different types of pain. So for example, I think we all know what works well for nociceptive pain. We take ibuprofen, right? So we get some, you know, we get reduction in that input, or we put ice on something, ice it blocks no susceptive input up the spinal cord to the brain. So that's why we get relief from it. Um, so that works really well for that. When we have that kind of neurogenic type of inflammation-based pain, there are medications for that. There's crossover. It's not that, you know, ibuprofen can work for that too, but that people might go on some nerve-based uh, pain relieving medication, like for example, gabapentin, if you've ever heard of that, that's something that would be used to reduce nerve inflammation. Um, when people have uh, this nosoplastic or uh, central sensitization, there's usually a combination of medications that are used for that. And you see these drugs oftentimes, because here in America, we see, you know, all those meds are being advertised in TV all the time, you know, Lyrica and things like that for fibromyalgia. And a lot of them are also combinations of using things like antidepressive medications because they have an influence on, you know, the brain as a whole. So when we take that philosophy and then you say, okay, well, that's how medications are working to target these different pathways, depending on what the pain is doing, but there's also other layers of things, right? So we talked about ice, ice is going to work on no susceptic pain, but if you use ice on, on somebody with centralized pain, the classic hallmark sign of centralized pain is a variety of responses to the same stimuli. So depending on how vigilant that person's nervous system is, you know, one day you can work on them hard with an elbow with massage and it feels great. But the next day they're sitting at their computer working and their state is agitated and their neurology. And when the air conditioning comes on and it hits their neck, now they have a tweet and their neck has pain. 
And when you, if you put ice on that, it's going to make it worse because it's already those receptors to thermoregulation in the tissue are now too sensitive. So you could see, you know, the, and it can vary. One day ice makes them better, one day it does not. But ice on no susceptive pain oftentimes works pretty consistently. Uh, massage therapy, same kind of thing. Massage therapy is good with the no susceptive input. It increases blood flow, you know, calms tissues down. It's oftentimes associated in massage with reducing anxiety and stress and tension. Works really well for no susceptive. Fibromyalgia or centralized pain. Some days it does work really well. Some days it doesn't work, depending on the state of the nervous system. Um, movement, okay. Movement is another one. New, movement can reduce nociception because let's say that somebody has tension in their lower back or in their hip flexors or something like that. If I give them exercises that turn on the opposite muscles, then that's going to reduce the tension in those tight muscles. And that's going to reduce that nociceptive input to the brain. A chiropractic adjustment, if someone's joint feels tight and because of tight muscles and because they're guarded and it's painful, a chiropractic adjustment may actually alter those receptors that are uh, triggered in the, uh, in the spine and that can reduce nociception. So those kinds of things work really well. Some things will also work with the neurogenic depending, right? So obviously when nerves are aggravated, moving blood, flossing nerves around through movement and doing massage can be very useful for that type of pain. Okay. So there are a variety of things. And sometimes there's, as you can imagine, you have to test and see what kinds of therapies are going to work. And it depends on the circumstance and the mixture of uh, type of pain that the person might be uh, having that experience from. Mm -hmm. So how do we actually go about, what are, what are some of the ways that we can actually test for this? Or what are some of the approaches that you take to trying to figure out this? Um, I'm, I'm kind of seeing it like a, a puzzle, a mosaic of all yeah. these pieces and you know this piece might be bigger than this piece for this person but slightly different for the next person yeah and there are no definitive tests for this um i think that the symptoms for the most part give you a good idea and the history now because i'm not a medical doctor i'm not usually the first person that people see for things um and in fact i oftentimes end up being the multiple people down the line which is great for me because that's what i'm set to do and that's what my expertise is if you break a bone or tear a muscle, I don't know what to do with you. You need to go to the doctor, you know, because that's a different kind of problem, right? So when people go to the doctor, they're cleared for serious pathology. They're given standard of care. What's the standard of care? Anti-inflammatories, maybe muscle relaxer if the pain is severe, uh, assess what the issue is, right? So that occurs and they may go to physical therapy if it's a minor back issue or whatever. Physical therapy usually is going to put them through the standard care, maybe some core exercise, ice, heat, et cetera. So they're getting a lot of that stuff in there. Now, people will exit that system of one of two ways. Either they're better and then they just go about their business or two, they don't. And a lot of people are kind of in the mix, mixture of somewhere in the middle. They feel better. The situation is improved, but they're not back to, to normal function again. And that's where we're saying they're kind of moving into the chronic land. The tissue has healed but they're now developing this ongoing issue. So usually by then what happens is most people have that experience of going around to different practitioners, chiropractic, massage, they try different things. And the things that they have tried, when I talk to people, I say, what has worked? Mm. What have you done that made you feel better? Uh, how long did it last, et cetera? And a lot of people will tell me a story and it's exactly what I wanna hear. They say, well, I did some chiropractic adjustments. It felt a little bit better, but then I did some massage with it. And hey, you know what? My neck felt a little bit better, but it only lasted a day or two. And I had to keep going back. 
Uh, I did some core exercises. I feel like it kind of helped. So you're getting a story of saying, I think some of these things have helped. I could say that, but it didn't stick. So to me, in my mind, the first thing I always say is it did work. The problem is it didn't stick. It didn't stick because there's an element of this that's missing. And an element of that missing involves a lot of different additional factors, but the story and the progression of what the person has experienced usually gives you an idea of what's going on. Then when people come in, and of course we start to do things, the story continues to unfold and you get closer and closer to understanding what is going on. Now, of course, there are people that come in right off the bat. Well, I've had a diagnosis of fibromyalgia or I have complex regional pain syndrome or whatever, and you know right away what you're dealing with because in order to arrive at that diagnosis, those are diagnoses oftentimes of exclusion for fibromyalgia in particular, meaning that they have been ruled out for everything else and fibromyalgia is the remaining diagnosis. So you kind of know right off the bat what you're dealing with. But a lot of those people, when people are diagnosed with fibromyalgia, they don't present the same way every time. Um, some of them tense, seemingly have a lot of no nociceptive type of input and pain and other people, it's more generalized pain too. So it's not very clear. And a lot of times, you know, as you work with people, looking at their history and seeing how they respond to things, you kind of arrive at a little bit more of a conclusion on what type of pain they might be dealing with and how it might be contributing to their overall situation. Mm -hmm. Do we have any data on the, you know, the, the, the number of cases when it comes to things like fibromyalgia um, and all these other different types of conditions that where there's associated chronic pain um, because you know throw the word fibromyalgia around 10 15 20 years ago it certainly doesn't seem like this you know almost existed or it was a very rare thing it was just starting to be talked about so the perception is that this is increasing and chronic pain and various types of chronic pain is has been increasing do we have data on whether that's because there were um, you know, a lot of these things weren't being diagnosed correctly, or we didn't have the diagnostic instruments or, um, uh, whether this is actually increasing, like what, what, what's the, what's the state here? That's a really complex question. And I think there's a lot of stuff that actually contributes to that. I mean, there, when you look at the pain research and the pain literature up until a certain point, and it was probably seventies, eighties, there hadn't been a lot of forward progress on the, on the concept of pain. A lot of it was based upon the old model of, you know, we we'd stopped at learning about kind of the gate control theory, the idea of, you know, essentially that pain is coming from the body and the, and the brain is making a decision, you know, on, on how to cope with the input coming to the system. It was just a very reactive kind of model versus um, I think kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, and you're calling me to, to ask, uh, to think about the seminal kind of book that changed the tide of things that I forget what it was, but essentially a lot of the kind of neuroscience um, stuff had started to pick up. And in particular, there was a realization that the brain was ultimately involved in the, uh, the interpretation of the information from the body, and it's a two-way street. So that's kind of where things started to change and to say, well, we have information going from the body to the brain. Is pain in the body or is pain in the brain? What's going on here? And it's really neither. It's in both. The information has to go to the brain, and the brain has to interpret that information in order to determine the pain. So we get into a lot of uh, fun learnings that we teach people with, with neuroscience education about pain is that the brain has the ability to block out or to shut down the information that's coming up the chain. And we think about this through what called the gate theory actually does uh, help to understand 
which is if you think about the information from the body, let's say I stub my toe, right? That information has to go up to the spinal cord through the nerves and the spinal cord through what we call the dorsal horn is essentially like a gate and the gate opens or closes to allow that information and how much of that information to go up. Now that gate is controlled by a number of different factors. And one of those factors is, is the brain's operation at state of vigilance, for example. One of the things that we know is that the more you are concerned about something, the more the gate opens because the brain wants to, to receive more information from the body because it's trying to determine what's going on. So the pain oftentimes will be greater because we're more sensitive to what's going on in the body. On the opposite, when individuals are educated on pain and they know what's going on with their body and they know that it's not threatening, the gate will actually close and we start sensing less information because we're less concerned. So this whole concept of what's going on here really started to shift when this become kind of mainstream and there was more research coming out about this in the uh, 80s, 90s and so forth. So before that, there was, a, there was not a lot of that going on, okay? And then on top of it, there's biopsychosocial regions and, and, and all sorts of things. In particular, uh, situations like fibromyalgia, I don't know the exact statistic, is far more common in women. And women who are dealing with these issues, I think in the medical system, are probably a little bit more or less, you know, they didn't, they didn't have any way to deal with this. So I would imagine how they dealt with it was it was just kind of like, okay, I don't know what's wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. And we're going to assign medications or whatever. And, and even today, sometimes there's kind of a cliff where like, once you have a diagnosis, it's like, well, that's it. There's nothing really you do about it. But now as we're learning all of this information, those things are changing, but there's still a struggle to get this out into the mainstream. Um, because when it comes to institutes, educational institutes, and, and the way that our systems work, it takes time for that information to kind of drip down and to get into practice. I mean, even just now, we're looking at organizations like Kaiser and so forth, you're starting to see a lot more rapid implementation of things like, hey, teach people how to meditate, teach people how to do lifestyle things. I mean, this is 2022, and they're just now starting to roll those processes out. So I'd say that, you know, to say that we're you know, 15, 20 years behind the times, I, I think is, is probably close to accurate. And I think that's why um, as people have more stress, have more things going on, we're getting more nervous systems that are more vigilant and there's more information available to us on the internet. We know the negative impact sometimes of Dr. Google. You know, every time somebody has something wrong, they go right to Google and they catastrophize and we get flooded with all this threatening information. And the other side of it, the way that this, the system hasn't caught up enough to kind of eradicate some of that information and, and get people uh, the right information and treatment that they need. So it, it's, you see what I mean? It's real messy. And I think there's a lot of stuff that's involved in why we're not making as much headway as fast as we really could in, in our entire society on these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even talking to many medical specialists who often say, look, the, the, in terms of the, the, the state of the literature in medicine, it takes at least 10 years for that to filter down to someone like your local GP. Yep. And I always say like, you know, even when it comes to GPs, they're dealing with patient after patient after patient in, in, in Australia here, usually in like 10 to 15 minute slots. It's not like they're going to have a, a spare 20 or 30 hours a week to keep up with what's current in the literature. Right. So it's, there's a few issues here in terms of getting what's current in the, the scientific community into practice. What, and, 
And another piece that I would just throw in there is that the, the, the diagnostic element is the first thing that has to start. So like the treatment algorithm, when certain questions are you know, answered and you run certain labs, the first step is just the diagnosis of it. But then that's not it, because once the diagnosis is it, then what about the treatment? And then the treatment is a whole another realm of research has to be done and things have to be done in order for there to actually be an effective treatment for that diagnosis. So up until this point, again, still noticing over the years, I've been in this realm of health and fitness and working with people with pain for 20 years. Um, how many people I've seen with fibromyalgia and, and, and frankly, even now with what I do, I'm far more educated and how to help some people with fibromyalgia. Uh, there is no medications are the standard dosage or treatment. That's it. I mean, they, they go through that and it's their pain is managed. Um, they're told to exercise and do fitness, but there's no protocols. So almost everybody that I talk to, I say, well, have you been told how much to exercise? I've been told, you know, how to do dietary stuff and whatever. No. So it's, it's, it's just not gotten to that level of kind of like management because there's not really specialists in some fields uh, who really have expertise in this, who rely on that research and implement things. So there's just, there's, there's those parts of it, which can be frustrating. And I think that, um, you know, that's kind of a, uh, what we're talking about there. Talk to us about the uh, biopsychosocial uh, approach that you mentioned, briefly mentioned earlier. The biopsychosocial approach is a, a, an idea or concept that was developed in the late 1970s um, by a, a famous doctor who talked about uh, ultimately that, you know, most of the health issues that people have, everything, when we're dealing with human beings is never just a, like a structural thing or a biochemical thing or whatever. It's a, a complex web of interactions. I mean, if we just look at something as simple as uh, low back pain, so that when somebody has kind of the usual, my back hurts on a daily basis, it's not just a backache itself. What does the backache stop somebody from doing? So you might have somebody who has back pain who says, you know what, I have a hard time, uh, you know, sitting at work, you know, and my back hurts. And this person might have difficulty getting advancements in the workplace because their back hurts. It's stopping them from doing quality work. Uh, or when they, they go to the gym, their back hurts. And maybe they can't do the physical activities that they want to do. And this scenario might make somebody feel overwhelmed. It might make them feel you know, anxious or depressed. And now we have other things that go with it. And as we deal with those things, we're stressed. Maybe we're dealing with more cortisol. Cortisol is now kicking our blood sugar around a little bit. And now we're dealing with something like that. Maybe now we're not sleeping as well. It's hard to keep things in a box with a human being because we are so, everything is so connected. So when you're dealing with, with any kind of health issue, it's the awareness of how many biological, sociological, and psychological factors are all intertwining. The way that we interact with ourselves, the way we interact with our environment. And another key piece of this, which I think a lot of people will really nail this home, is when somebody comes in, for example, they say, well, I have back pain, but for some reason, when I go on, when on vacation, I could go do hike for miles and whatever, my back didn't bother me. But the day I came back, the next day, my back started hurting again. So when you take the person out of that biopsychosocial environment and you put them somewhere else, when all of those factors collided, it didn't end up in the same uh, health issue or challenge that the person was experiencing. Now that doesn't happen all the time, but that's definitely an interesting story that a lot of people have experienced is when they change their environment or their psychology, they went somewhere fun, they went to Disneyland, their back didn't hurt. How is this possible? That's how complicated human beings are and how we should approach complex health issues from a biopsychosocial perspective. Mm. How do you approach this when it comes to explaining to someone that 
perhaps their diet, their sleep, their relationships, their work environment are all contrib- potentially contributing to their chronic pain. Like, because I, I can imagine, and this happens a lot in the coaching space when um, we're talking about, uh, I'll give a, a brief example. Uh, my first research study that I ever conducted was on the impact of the emotions we experience as we encounter a challenge uh, directly impacts our ability to pursue our goals. So we're talking about the impact of our emotions on goal pursuit and goal achievement. And I've often talked to my coaches about that and our students and even go one step further and say, look, even things like the quality of our sleep is going to impact your ability to accomplish your goals. Yeah. And we can keep going and going and going and building this, this, you know, as you say, like a complex uh, web that, you know, um, um, has all these pieces connected. But for some people, when you get too far away and they go, you know, how is sleep going to, um, how's the quality of my sleep going to impact this goal that I'm trying to pursue? Or how does, how does the foods that I'm eating or the quality of my relationships impact the chronic pain that I've got from this injury? Like when that gap's too big, how do you approach this uh, to, to bridge that gap for people? Slowly. Um, I, I would say that that's probably one of the primary things, which is hard to kind of to engage with all of those things overlapping at the same time, because we're, we're so conditioned to think um, that almost like a, I call it the sniper principle, the one shot, one kill. There's one thing, we, we hit it with one thing and bang, that's the whole problem. But that's not really how it works in chronic issues, especially. And there's always times where people have had experiences where with a chronic issue, whatever they might have had, they did one targeted therapy or something that ended up kind of being the thing that made them better, but that further solidifies the belief that it was one thing. And it's never one thing. Um, and in particular, there's lots of studies that show, for example, the success of your therapeutic efforts has a lot to do with what we call the therapeutic alliance. How well do you like your healthcare professional? How much do you trust them? That influences the effect of the therapy. So even when you think it's one thing, it's tons of things. So um, I always start with teaching people that the way that everything works in the body, simply from a, a neurology standpoint, is that you know it's the state of vigilance. Now, there's another problem that people with pain have or health issues is that the brain, when it's constantly having to deal with this barrage of input and threat, the brain's resources are occupied trying to cope with that threat. So when somebody has pain and they're just sitting here, even if we were talking here and let's say my hip is bothering me, a portion of my conscious awareness is being soaked up by trying to block out the pain while I'm I'm having a conversation with you. So to some degree, it's a drain on my resources. We don't have an infinite ability to cope with tons of input at the same time. We have to be able to block some things out. And our ability to block those things out is going to be based upon our ability to, you know, how rested we are, the better I sleep. You ever noticed, anybody with kids knows this, when you've slept really well, you know, you could be in the middle of the living room watching television, kids are screaming, running by, and as long as it doesn't hit a certain noise level, you're good. And you're just watching TV and you just block it out. But if you didn't sleep well that night, you're aggravated from a work scenario, maybe your back hurts. Oh my gosh. If there's a whisper in the room, you're like, that's too loud. You know, like, but I use these kinds of conversations to help people understand that all of these stressors that we have are like white noise and white noise is okay. And human beings, we deal with that. But when the noise gets to a certain level, it, it triggers it, your inability to block it out. And that's going to fry or keep up those resources being blocked from the things that you want to do. 
So the key is when we reduce stressors, improve your sleep a little bit, improve your diet a little bit, all we're doing is turning that volume knob down on the white noise so that you could put more energy and awareness into the things that you, you're intentionally trying to do. Um, and, you know, as I play with different metaphors and different descriptions, of course, we always have to do because everybody learns differently. That's kind of what I'm always trying to teach people from a fundamental basis is uh, the alarm system is too sensitive because there's too much white noise in the system. Um, but certainly if you, you know, there's a difference in some of these things are going to be more potent for the individual. Some people it's more diet is more influential. Some people it's more about uh, exercise or sleep. And that's the, the trick that nobody knows is that you have to kind of do a little bit into each of these things. And once you find that something is working or it's influential, then try to deep dive a little bit more and see how much you get out of that. But what we oftentimes get is that people go so far down into the rabbit hole of one thing and they forget to balance at least getting started and doing a little bit of those other things. So maybe having a balanced approach, bringing it down rather than doing one or two things and really going for it. Mm-hmm. It's like um, I'm reminded of uh, some biohackers that I know who are so bullish, oh. shielding themselves from EMFs that yeah. they forget that they might live in a polluted city. Or I've had clients in the past that are so, you know, I've got to get the right grams of protein. <laughs> of fat but they're still smoking right uh, these sorts of things <laughs> it's too far yeah yeah it's an inch wide and a mile deep and again I, I have an understanding i mean every field has that like how far can you go in terms of manual therapy like how do you manipulate every little thing and you know release every soft tissue but the question is is that necessary for most people because if you purely believe and that's kind of the problem if your mindset is not about the philosophy and understanding the current literature and the movement on pain neuroscience and what's happening when we have pain, then you will hyper fixate and focus on whatever you've been taught. Most of us in this field with movement have been taught that pain is a structural biomechanical problem. And we know that the research shows that you cannot, and there's been upteen amount of studies that look at this, that you can't look at someone's posture and tell who's in pain. It doesn't work. Um, it's, it falls flat on its face, that theory, but here we are now mountains of people still pushing. If you fix your posture, all your problems are going to go away. Uh, let alone the fact that, you know, when you, you look around, nobody has great posture, but yet, you know, we put those two things together, but as a structural practitioner, one will fixate purely on that because they believe that that is true. And then they're going to be very granular with what they do and be just not aware of all of the other factors that are going around. Uh, so as great human beings, we tend to do, we generalize to delete and distort information uh, to suit our confirmation biases. So that's kind of a, a symptom of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of this beautiful study and it was something along the lines of having two groups of people and they had to put their hand into, um, you know, the, the cold presser task, the cold plunge, mm-hmm. basically put your, for our listeners, you put your, hand or arm into freezing cold uh, water. And they had these two groups of people go through a visualization exercise and it was visualizing trekking to the top of a, a mountain and you to get to the top of the mountain, the top of the mountain symbolized uh, like this was the, the pursuit of goals. And um, on the way up the mountain, you had to cross this icy cold river. And that was obviously, you know, the association to putting your arm into the the ice cold water. And one group 
kept their values in mind. So they saw their values at the top of the mountain as they were trying to climb this thing. And just by keeping their values in mind, the things that were most important to them on a, at a core level, they were able to hold their arm in for a lot longer. They rated the pain as a lot less. The pain and discomfort was a lot less than, than um, the other group. And when they pulled it out, they recovered faster from the cold as well. So something is happening on a, on a physiological level, a biological level with this pain and discomfort and, and even the way that um, the body or the brain was treating the sensations and then the recovery afterwards, just by keeping values in mind, like something that's important to them, just crazy. Like, but it just shows how interconnected these things are, right? Yeah, and it's kind of part of the philosophy and so many parallels between these things as to why pain neuroscience education, which is a whole concept of teaching people about pain, because it contextualizes the, the sensory input. So for example, when they do studies on, on different types of um, chronic pain reporting uh, amongst different types of sports, for example, when you look at things like, for example, demolition derby driving, and I always forget the stat, and it's in my book, I talk about it, but... Um, Demolition derby drivers, on average, I think they average something like 50, 75 car accidents, and that might even be on the low end per event because they're smashing around and hitting each other. The average uh, accident is at something like 24 miles an hour. Now, if you've ever been hit at 24 miles an hour, it's no gentle thing. I mean, you, you get hit pretty good. So many, many car accidents and how many events on average these demolition derby drivers have over the course of their career, it's a lot. So they've been in almost hundreds of car accidents, hundreds. And then they look at the reported incidents of chronic pain amongst them, like neck pain and so forth. It's staggeringly low, staggeringly low. And when you look at that and then you say, well, what's happening here? You look at the medical profession, the medical profession about individuals that have to stop working in the healthcare professions as a result of chronic pain, staggeringly lower than the general population. So in these two circumstances, very simple to carry off what you talked about, is that when you take a frame and you contextualize the, the, the pain and the meaning is different, mm -hmm. then it reduces the um, disability that's associated to it. The brain perceives it differently. When the context of the pain that it occurs makes sense. If I have a football in my hand and I have pads on and somebody's going to run at me and hit me you know, going 15 miles an hour who weighs 270 pounds, my brain expects that to hurt. Mm -hmm. And when that is normal and I get right back up again and play the next play, what's the likelihood that I'm going to develop a lasting pain issue from that? Even if I get up and I have bruises all over my body, I look down and my brain goes, so what? I played football. Yeah. So it's same thing. Oh, my arm is killing me. So I'm going toward a goal. It, it has a, it references, you know, things make sense, but if I'm sitting at a stoplight texting and somebody hits me from behind at 15 miles an hour, that's unexpected. My car got rear-ended. My insurance doesn't cover a hundred percent of it. And now I'm late for work. Look at that context. Yeah. And that meaning is far different. So in that moment, there's going to be a lot more coding in the brain of what just happened and the consequences of it the more likely it is to contribute to development of chronic issues as a result of that experience. So that's how powerful education is in the chronic pain experience. I've seen many individuals who have significantly reduced their pain 
just by teaching them introductory pain neuroscience. Even those people listening to this podcast, it's not far off to imagine that people who've never been exposed to this information will start to feel differently about their pain and their sensations just by listening to this. And that's how, uh, how again, complex that biopsychosocial dynamic is when you're dealing with the information that's coming from your body and how your brain is registering it, uh, basically changing your response to it. Love it. And I think it gives us, it empowers people so much more, it gives us so much more, so many more ins rather than just being diagnosed here, take this pill or here, do this therapy. Now we have so many more ways of being able to contribute to this uh, um, ourselves as well, right? There is so much more that is available out there right now that's cool stuff. And um, in particular, so we're so obsessed with the bottom-up approach, the, all the things that we can do to the body to try to send different information to the brain, but not enough on the brain down because the brain down is the other part of the equation. So uh, pain neuroscience education, just learning about pain. And some of this stuff can be done in a few, an hour course. You know, I offer a free course on my website that people can access with a video. Um, there are other therapies that work really well. And people are just starting to scratch the surface on things like mindfulness and what that does and creative visualization for chronic pain. But we can't get wrapped into the whole solution to your issue is just doing mindfulness. Certainly some people that's going to work real well. But if it's used as a combination therapy, it's going to be very helpful. So I always try to include those things. I'm a huge advocate of hypnotherapy. Uh, my problem is, is that there's with the, the industry is the stigma that's associated to hypnosis, you know, and there is some very medical, clinical, tons and tons of research and studies that are now looking at all those things that we're talking about here, that teaching people how to relax their body and to creatively visualize the information coming from their body and meeting different things and how that's changing uh, the process of chronic pain. Now you can imagine taking that and, and latching on to a bottom-up approach, some massage therapy, some nutrition, some lifestyle coaching and changes, ergonomics, and then doing hypnosis or doing mindfulness training, which does the same thing to the brain, by the way, and putting that all into one package. And those are the things that are being missed. And again, it's a lot of it due to trends. It's being undercapitalized on because certain trends favor certain things. And, um, you know, I don't know when the last time I saw hypnotherapy being a valid uh, therapeutic uh, uh, tool for chronic pain on the front page of CNN, but last I saw some genetic study that shows that we're going to be able to use a pill to turn off the part of the brain that perceives pain, which is not going to happen because pain is multiple things going on, but that makes the front page. So it, it, it influences the trends. And, and that's what I would like to see uh, more of this valid information kind of being marketable and getting out there so that people see it and can really benefit from it. Yeah. Even now, when I speak to some, um, some people, even in, even in this space and talk about hypnosis and hypnotherapy, it's, Oh, you know, don't make me cluck like a chicken. Ha ha ha. Or, um, Oh no, I'm not, uh, I've got too strong a mind for you to mind control me. <laughs> I'm like, come on, man, really? Haven't we gone past that yet? <laughs> it's unfortunate. And, you know, and I have had, you know, every time, you know, I hear some hypnotherapist is going to show up on someone's big podcast, huge podcast. And I'm like, get excited. I'm like, whoa, you know, somebody's going to be on there. It's somebody I've never heard of, you know, or, you know, somebody gets on there and they start talking about how they made somebody pee themselves or whatever. And I'm like, come on, you just ruined the opportunity. And, you know, that's disingenuous because we know that that's not what happens and you cannot mind control people. So, but that all, uh, 
muddies, you know, yeah. that field or that discipline and the powerfulness of it. In particular, you know, a lot of psychotherapists that are clinical hypnotherapists don't use the word hypnosis because of that reason, you know, and, and it's just a tool psychotherapist or a good therapist or a good coach or a good anybody who uses hypnosis as a tool to further empower their clients and to teach them skills. The most important part of hypnosis is to learn self-hypnosis because all hypnosis is self-hypnosis to learn how to alter your internal state and your perceptions of things. That is the real gold. And, you know, I just like to see the word destigmatized, but at the end of the day, it's the skills. The skills are what make the difference to teach people uh, how to be empowered to change and capitalize on what their neurology does really well, which is to learn and to um, change its perception of things and to respond to things in a different way, which we're all capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So if we're a, um, a chronic pain sufferer or we're listening to the podcast and we know someone who's a chronic pain sufferer, um, what do you recommend? What's the, what's the first step? What should people do? First step is to get educated on chronic pain. I mean, there really are four steps in the, in the process and there's many things that are involved in, in within that that you can learn. But number one is to learn about pain because pain education is therapeutic. Just like we talked about, just learning about it is a big deal and sometimes can make such a, a big mindset shift to going from no hope to a lot of hope. And that's a big step, especially if you feel like you've done, done you know, tons of things and it didn't work for you, right? So pain education is number one. Number two is movement, okay? We do movement. Movement's important for us, but you know, of course that's a big, that's a big topic because you gotta figure out the right kind of movement for you. Uh, there's mounds of studies that show that people with um, virtually every condition, with the exception of a few obvious ones, but movement helps everything. So we don't want people laying in a bed all the time in a hospital. You know, we want to move them, even physical therapy and people that are debilitated, try to get them to do some movement because it's healthy for us and it helps a lot of things. But figuring out a solution to that, of course, the third thing is sleep. Sleep is far less emphasized than it should be. Um, there's mounds of studies out there on this one that show the better rested your brain is, the better you sleep, the more white noise you can tolerate, right? The more stress you can deal with. So sleeping better doesn't just eliminate pain, but what it can do is it can certainly turn the volume down and improve your ability to cope with it. And that's a big deal, right? So all the things that involve improving sleep. And then the last thing, of course, is goal setting. And this is a big topic that requires a little bit more, but I'll give you just a little nugget that the, the purpose of, of a program should not purely be about pain relief. Now that sounds a weird because if you have pain, the, what you wanna do is to have less pain. But considering the biopsychosocial phenomenon, it's not always pain that is the problem. It's the pain of having the pain that's the problem. What is it stopping you from doing? So if that person has pain and it's ruining their life because they can't play golf on the weekends, the goal is not to fixate on pain, it's how do I make steps toward being able to play golf again? So maybe there's, I can't swing full, but maybe I can putt. Oh, I can putt. So then go putt, you know, because now you're playing the game and you're moving toward that. The goals is to improve function, to be able to do the things that you want to do. This is just what we talked about, isn't it? If you're making progress towards something, then paradoxically what happens is our brain perceives it as less threatening and the gate closes. Now we feel less pain. Okay. But if we fixate on, we can't play 18 holes, I'm not going to do anything because of my pain. We're now in a worse off situation because now we're in no win land. And now we fixate on pain. The gate control opens. We experience more pain, more disability, more so forth. 
So always the mindset shifting. And that's the thing that we want to make sure that we understand is that our mind should always be moving into the direction we want to go. And the speed at which we're moving in that direction can be limited by things like pain, but that doesn't stop us from continuing to move forward with our mindset. And um, so those are the kind of the four things. And within that, you can deep dive into all of those. But what does it all start with? Education. And you're already starting the process, those of you who are listening, by listening to the podcast. So now it's the next step is where can I get more information at? Yeah. And you mentioned uh, you've got a free course on your website. What's the, uh, where, where can people go to get started there? Yeah. My site is releasemuscleththerapy.com. And uh, I got a, a, a basically a membership area that you can log into that's free. And inside it, I put the pain neuroscience webinar. It's about 45 minutes um, teaching the basics of pain neuroscience education, a lot of things we talked about and much more expanded. But also inside is a copy of my book, which I give away for free. It's an ebook, which is a lot of the research on the most common factors associated when we talk about with pain, posture, orthotics. What are all these things? What does the research say on this? And I think it's a big mind opener for a lot of people to just kind of step back and look at the big picture of things versus getting lost in each of those little therapies. So I invite people to go in, check that out. There's a lot of other resources in there as well. Fantastic. Uh, Sam, I love this conversation. It's been you know, really cool. I'd, I'd really like to have you back on the show in the not too distant future and maybe talk a little bit more about some of these topics we've only just touched on. Yeah. The therapy side and really sort of dived a little bit deeper. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I'm sure everybody now is like, well, what do we do specifically? And it's like, well, trust me, the big picture is, is so important yeah. that with, you know, the details without the big picture, it doesn't work as well. So definitely a lot more to expand upon and, and come back and chat about it at some point. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review, and of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon. Bye.